You're not what I asked for If I'm honest, I know I would give it all back For a chance to start over Rewrite an ending or two For that girl that I knew Who'd be reckless just enough Who'd get hurt Oh, who learns how to toughen up And she's bruised And gets used by a man Broadway for Sunday, September 13th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Jeremy Jordan is joining us by telephone on his way to get breakfast. Uh, yeah, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy, thank you for... Uh, We're getting donuts, actually. Donuts? You eat carbs? No way you eat carbs. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing anybody's ever accused me of not doing. <laughs> so, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Uh, you know, I was looking through our archives. We we just passed about show 2000. Uh, oh, crazy! And, and and we've mentioned you fifty four times, and I thought for sure that we. How do you know that? <laughs> How do I know what? You have a transcript of every show you've done. Yes. Wow. Yes, we. Okay. You, you know, it, this uh, Broadway radio thing is made up of of uh, obsessive fans. Uh, uh-huh. And you might not know anything about obsessive fans. Do you know anything about <laughs> obsessive fans? You newsy. <laughs> A little bit, a little bit here and there. You know, more obsessive than Star Trek fans, maybe, you know? I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, they definitely hold their own. So we have 54 mentions of of you on, on Broadway Radio, um, and, and we've okay. never had you on, and I don't know how that's possible. Um, but right. Thank you for joining us. You know, spending your, a little bit of your Sunday morning very early on your way to get donuts. Uh, but <laughs> but also tonight you have something really special going on with uh, Seth Rudetsky. Uh, you're going to be live in concert uh, yeah. tonight. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is um, actually my second uh, virtual show with Seth. Um, you know, we've done a lot of concerts together over the years, but um, you know, we kind of started early on during the pandemic and, and did one of these a few months ago. Uh, and it was really fun. And they've got like this, this uh, sort of technology that allows us to kind of play together at the same time mm-hmm. with, uh, with very little latency. So he can play his piano and I can sing even though we're in different spots. So that's pretty cool. 
and um and so he's playing and i'm singing along and we're gonna sing some fun stuff we, we took a lot of requests online and I'll just be standing in my living room, hopefully with decent lighting and uh, trying not to wake up my daughter, who I'm sure you can hear in the background. <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, just ta- talking a little bit and singing some. And uh, it's usually really, a really fun, chill uh, evening. And uh, we just try to try to bring the entertainment. So Michael and I uh, saw you on March 11th, 2019 at the town hall with Seth Rudetsky. Oh, uh, oh the infamous pee break. Yes, the, the infamous pee break. Uh, and, and, and since that day, uh, my wife has asked me repeatedly, have you spoken to Jeremy? Have you spoken to Jeremy? And I said, no, I haven't. I haven't. And she wants to know how much of that was scripted because it just seemed so extemporaneous the entire evening. Uh, obviously, the whole you, evening. You, well, it seemed like the whole evening up until your acapella, bring him home at the end. You know, uh, and I was like, no, they have to plan the songs. And she says, no, that seems it seemed too extemporaneous. So <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the props in saying that it it, it was a wonderful wonderful show. And how, oh, how how much is it how much is it planned? And in comparison to what you're going to be doing tonight with Seth, how similar um, is it? It should be fairly similar to that. Um, it'll be probably a little less extensive because uh, people have less of an attention span when mm-hmm. they're on their computers than when they're sitting in a theater. Um, but, yeah, it'll be similar. Well, he basically sort of interviews me and we sort of chat about life and career and what's going on. And, and then we sing whatever songs we thought. And, and yes, we, we, we do plan the songs ahead, although Seth has told me that he's going to throw one he might throw one at me that we haven't touched so uh. good thing is that we're we at home so we have google to look up song lyrics um <laughs> if we need them. but but no usually we plan out the songs but that's it i mean i i imagine he thinks about what he's going to ask me it's more of an interview sort of a thing though so mm. certainly nothing on my end is is scripted I think, yeah, I think the show in question at Town Hall, it seemed to me that maybe the order wasn't completely set in stone. Oh, yeah. I have no idea what order things are going to be. Okay. Yeah. Well, that would we, that would contribute yeah. to spontaneity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> usually, usually we know what we're going to end with, but sometimes not. But, uh, you know, it's it just kind of keeps it light and, and, and sort of fun and, like, like you said, spontaneous. And, uh-huh. Yeah, that... that that specific show that you guys saw at Town Hall was was uh, special because it lasted almost two hours, which is much longer than we had planned to go. Mm. And I was really, I had just come up being sick. And uh, so I was chugging water like a crazy person because I was still like maybe 80, 90, not, you know, maybe 80% healthy. And uh, about halfway through, I was like, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> and uh, there's no intermission. So I had to, uh, Excuse yeah. myself, and Seth just rambled on for a minute as I sprinted to the bathroom backstage. <laughs> it was, uh, it was and uh, did, did you have to rip off your body mic, or did you cover it? I don't. We didn't have a body mic. We had handhelds. Thank you. Oh, that's right. You did. Okay. Yeah, that, that would have been quite interesting. <laughs> so, um, you have a long history with Seth. Uh, really, uh, not more than maybe five years or so. We started doing these concerts, um, after I made an appearance on his radio show back in like 2015 or 16, maybe. 
and uh, we started kind of, he started doing this concert series where he would go around the States and, and um, you know, do shows with Broadway people. And um, he's asked me to do a few of them with him. And so yeah, we knew each other for a few years for sure. And sort of have developed a rapport in that, in that sense. One of the many incredible highlights of that concert was that you sang for West Side Story, which I've told you this story. I, I had a ticket to see you in it on Broadway, and I couldn't use it, and I'll never forgive myself. But it How was, dare you? I know. It was <laughs> great to hear you sing some of it. And I, I've always wanted to ask you, you um, I, I think uh, there are some wonderful highlights viewable online of the Hollywood Bowl concert you did. Of yeah. With Saleya Pfeiffer, really I, incredible. I, I highly, highly recommend them. But I always wanted to ask you if you, you are the first person I've ever seen do that role of Tony with a thick New York accent. And it just seems so natural and such a perfect choice that I, uh, I, I was wondering if, did, did that just come to you? Uh, to do it that way or did it um i have to i have to let you in on a little bit of secret like okay. i have to actually like make myself not speak with a new york accent sometimes when i'm acting. really it's just what i always did as a kid for some reason i i grew up in texas which doesn't make any sense not that i did grow up in no. texas but that i have a natural new york accent um but i think i watched a lot of newsies growing up <laughs> and um, I just sort of, as a kid, that was like my actor voice. And so when I got Newsies, it was like a perfect fit. Um, and I just sort of slid right into it. But then West Side Story it takes place in New York. And, you know, they're not upper class people by any means. No, um, of course. Yeah. And so, you know, it would only seem natural that there would certainly be a, 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 at least a, a bit of a New York accent. And... Um, so yeah, it was it was, just seemed seemed like the thing to do, and uh, like I said, it comes really easily to me. I mean, of course, I've lived here for so long, but um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I think it was just a a pretty. It's a choice that I made on Broadway too. I mean, and and, and I think I think that um, Matt Cavanaugh, who played it before me, also had an accent. Oh yeah, I suppose yeah, I suppose that is true. But yeah. You- um, yeah, you just, you, you, it does sound really, really natural. And when I've seen West Side Story done, you know, a thousand times before, and Tony yeah. doesn't have that accent, when, when I've seen that and heard that, I think, oh, well, that's supposed to show that he's, um, he's kind of moving away from the gang and he's not a part right, of it. Right, right. But, but, but he's still working class. I mean, he's still. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So it made, and I think it made yeah. the character much stronger in a way. Uh, so I oh, think it was a really great thing to do. I not really thought about it that way. It just always seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah. I'm going to start slipping into it now if I'm not careful. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, one of our listeners is asking, uh, how can you possibly be at Miscast and, uh, and your Seth show at the same time? <laughs> I'm not going to be at Miscast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, think, I think they're doing like, um, they're, they're playing something that I pre-recorded a long time ago before uh, the show. Okay. Um, like they're, I think they're showing like, um, little clips of old from old shows, and then I had done a little recording of me talking about uh, talking about the performance. So, but no, I I'm not doing this cast this uh, this year. But they, I'm sure it'll go on longer than my show, so they can watch my show and then tune in the next cast after. <laughs> they can still donate to MCC or you know whatever their 
yes. their uh, fundraising for sure. after. after. I don't know. I, I don't know if they'll include this, but uh, I guess they could include. Uh, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> oh God! I just saw for the first time yesterday a friend of mine who's the world's biggest Celine Dion fan. So it's a it's a great tribute. He said it was the greatest live performance he's ever seen in his life. <laughs> this was. <laughs> oh, he was there. Uh, no, for watching it on YouTube. Oh wow! And That's a. Uh... Which, by the way, has uh, Jeremy, as of yesterday, has 8,173,477 views. I realize it was at eight. That's nuts. It's it's just ridiculous to me because it was was just, um, you know, we do a lot of these, well, we used to before, you know, we stopped doing theater. Uh, We used to do a lot of these, or or they do a lot of these um, tribute concerts of Leaper Below where a bunch of Broadway people sing pop songs people and this was just another one of those and uh and my good friend ben asked me to come do it and uh he wanted me to sing a song and i was like it's all like minutes long he's like oh we're doing the whole thing it's like all right great but i'm definitely using lyrics because i'm not memorizing that <laughs> <laughs> and so i have a little lyric sheet off to the side you can't really know, but um but it's such a it's such a ridiculously overwrought song <laughs> and I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it seriously which is why it's just the goofiest thing ever but uh yeah i mean i just kind of made all that stuff up on the spot except for the key change we're playing the key change and um and yeah i, I never thought it was gonna go nuts like that. so um I wanted to ask you about American Son. Um, oh yeah, both uh, the Broadway production and the Netflix production. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, having uh, I saw both of those productions, and I thought to myself, it it seemed as though they uh, they almost could have shot it directly on stage there. What was? The, mm-hmm. But you, you guys came back to shoot a couple of months after, or what was the timeline there? Yeah, it was like a month later, I think, after we closed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, well, there were there were sort of restrictions, and I think there were some some not restrictions. There were some barriers that sort of weren't allowing us to shoot it on stage. It was never really an option, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But I also think that Netflix had come and was really interested in the sort of hybrid model that that we sort of presented and that's was kind of what we shot with and and so when we built it on the sound stage we were able to do a lot more and able to really precisely light it and we could take away that fourth wall and build the entire set and and make it even more intimate because i, I feel like when you shoot something on stage there's always that proscenium feel no matter what. Sure. And for some things, like when we shot Newsies, it works really well because it gives you that picture. Mm. And this isn't really a show about big proscenium pictures. It, it's a show about the, the really small, really raw, deep human emotions. And so I thought it lent itself really well to uh, mostly being shot super close up. And, uh, and you can really only do that well on a soundstage. And uh, so it was really fun. And what was really cool is that we had just finished the run. So we knew the whole script, like the back of our hand. And we would do like 20 to 30 minute shots. Wow. And that's just unheard of. And, yeah. Um, you know, it, you it's shoot, when you, when you, you see sequence? it. When you, no, no, we shot out of sequence. But we would, like I the show, the show was only 90 minutes. Yeah. 
so we, like I said, we would, we would say we needed to shoot one scene specifically. We would do 10 minutes of leading up to that scene just so that we could get ourselves ramped up into the scene that we were actually shooting. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Because it's all sort of, it all sort of builds on itself. Um, so it was really, it was really cool. I'd never been on camera done any, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff on camera, but I've never done anything where we were just shooting and rolling for half an hour and it was really cool. And, um, you know, it was a fun exercise to, to sort of, to sort of quickly switch from that projection of the stage to the intimacy of film. And, um, you know, luckily all of us had experience with both. So, um, it was kind of fun because we got to really rediscover it right there on camera. Uh, how was that different from the last five years? Well, I never did last five years on stage. Um, uh, yeah. So it's, I've only have that one experience. And also we were sort of reinventing last five years as we were shooting it because it's so, it's all just solos meant to be done alone on stage um, for the most part. Um, the fact that we would add each other into the scenes and try to create these um, cinematic moments um, out of something that was never intended to be that way. It was a, it was a different kind of beast, but also equally, um, I would say probably one of, if not the most artistically um, fulfilling um, film experiences that I've had because we really just created that whole scenescape together um you know and with the brilliant palette of the of the songs already in place it's so brilliantly done i watched the rewatched the whole movie last night and one thing i wanted right. to ask you is do you know if um do you recall if if any of it was actually sung live uh yeah most of it was oh okay the vast majority of it was yeah, yeah we had I- in-ear monitors and we had um, we either had the track accompaniment or someone would be off stage playing piano in our ears. Like if we needed to do more of a followy thing, there were a few num- there were a couple, really only a couple numbers that we didn't do all of it live just because it was a lot of cutting back and forth between environments, which can tend to really jumble the sound of the song. Right. And a lot of camera, uh, more, more yeah. movement in, in some numbers than others. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, before you run, I wanted to ask you about Waitress and uh, what your uh, experience was like in Waitress, because I, I think that, I'm not sure, 100% sure here, but is Waitress the first time you replaced? Oh, no, you replaced in Westside. Um, yeah, it was the second time I've replaced. I did Westside, and then, um, yeah, and then that. Although technically I did sort of replace in Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Stark Sands did the yeah. first production in La Jolla and then I uh, took over after that. But, but yeah, in terms of like replacing on Broadway, yeah, that was it. I mean, uh, unless you count when I was a swing in Rock of Ages and I did all the, all the roles that other people <laughs> had done first, uh, <laughs> even though they were still in the show. But mm-hmm. yeah. And Rock, Rock of Ages was... Uh... Is that the only time you got to perform with your wife? No, I never performed with my wife. Oh, she wasn't in at the same time. I thought that you were. No, I was in the original cast, and she joined uh, two or uh, three years in, I think. Oh, 
have you guys uh, yeah. you've never performed together concerts or stuff uh, like that or concerts yes concerts yes we we've had a couple of like um you know concerts that we've done together and she's sort of guested on a few of my concerts but that's really it honestly oh i will although she did make a cameo in the last 5 years mm. she um <laughs> she was the receptionist um at my agent's office who um and one of the girls that i cheated on kathy with ah uh, i see <laughs> uh when uh when was the first time you performed she used to be mine and how did that come about uh it was at miscast actually um and that's really the only reason it came about because you know you have to sing songs that you wouldn't normally sing and so and, but it uh, was your idea did it was it something that you you brought um, forward? Uh, I think it was a joint idea between Bernie Telsey and I. He usually he usually sends me a list of 30 songs. And uh, I had really been obsessed with Waitress at that point. That was before I did the show. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I, I'd, I'd seen it um, a couple of times because I saw it, uh, the original cast, and I saw it with Kat McPhee when she did it. And um, just was in love with the show. And um, and I'd done a concert with Betsy Wolf, a big symphony concert, and she sang it, and I was always so jealous. <laughs> so I was like, I'm totally singing that song. <laughs> and I didn't realize when I chose the song that Sarah Bareilles was going to be there. Uh-huh. Um, oh, my God. And she was one of the performers during – she was literally sitting on stage with me because they have all the performers sitting off to the side. And she was sitting next to me the whole time. And I'm just fangirling at the same point. And not, and she had no idea that I was singing her song. I got up to the microphone and I turned back and I was like, so um, I know we've been sitting next to each other, but uh, I'm going to be singing your song. So I hope I do a good job. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's always a fun one. It might, you, might, you, might, um, you might hear a little waitress tonight on th- at the show. Okay. Excellent. Well, uh, tonight's show is Sunday, September 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So adjust for your and, time and there's class. also an encore. Um, mm-hmm. There's also an encore Monday? tomorrow. Yeah, uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. The encore yes. is at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, you can get all this information at the SethConcertSeries.com. All of that stuff will be in the show notes, so you can catch up with uh, Jeremy at Seth's Concert Series. And uh, if it's going to be anything like Town Hall, you must go see it because <laughs> we we loved it, and uh, my wife was ready to divorce me and marry you, Jeremy. But then we found okay. out Ashley right. and. Uh, yeah. Children, things like that. So, well, here's to the 55th mention of me on your show. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Jeremy Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. You know, I forgot to ask Jeremy what kind of donut he was going to get. <laughs> you know, because the donut tells you about the person. Are you, you know, if you're wearing a white shirt, are you confident with the jelly? You know? <laughs> By the way, you know, there's a lesson here because I, I, I just thought I might ask if he might want to join us, but it was like two days ago and I thought, well, he'll never want to, you know, he'll never. Yeah. Sure. Morning, to. And yeah. it's, and it's the morning of the concert and, you know, but let me ask anyway. And they were like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, if somebody had said to me, uh, you know, uh, you know, what's Jeremy Jordan like? I would have been like, oh, we talked to him on Broadway radio and. But I, you know, it must. I'm, I must have talked to him for three or four times for different things, but not Broadway radio. Because I, 
I, yeah, I went back and looked in the uh, archive, and I was like, we never interviewed him on Broadway Radio, so we, I must have done it for something else. I guess so. But uh, yeah, uh, but uh, he's awesome. He's great. So Peter, you uh, we talked about last week. You got in the Felicia Mobile and headed up to see Fully Committed in Connecticut, and uh, give us a report on that. You know, not only how was the show, but is this the first? show you've seen in person no because you saw the no uh, susan charlotte shows uh, two of the yeah this is the third show of the season Mm. uh for me uh the third jewel of the triple crown uh going out to norwalk connecticut um exit 17 on the uh um 95 when you get into connecticut um because there are 21 exits before you get to um, Connecticut. So uh, exit 17, the same exit as the Westport uh, County Playhouse. And uh, this is a small theater, um, and it's been around for 34 years, I'm very happy to say. And it's really um, quite a nice little operation. I'm delighted that they're there. Uh, They've done Bridges of Madison County. They've done Ragtime. They've done uh, Evita. So it's a very, um, very... Ambitious organization, and what proves that better than the fact that they're doing a show right now? Um, they're only one of three uh, theaters that can uh, that are in business at the moment, and um, they intend to continue being in business because um, they're going to do a show called RFK about, of course, Robert F. Kennedy, followed by the uh, radio play "It's a Wonderful Life," and um, so uh, and and tenderly the. Um, the musical about Rosemary Clooney, better known as, um, I think, the aunt of George Clooney. But anyway, um, so it's really something. And I went out because, uh, mostly because Matt Densky is a student, was a student at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, where I've been um, teaching for the last 20 plus years, a couple of times a year. So it was uh, good to see him do it. Now, Fully Committed is such a difficult show to do. Good Lord. I mean, I was amazed once again that anybody could learn it, um, could sustain it, because um, here is a guy who's in the bowels of a restaurant having to take reservations with people who just want to get in, and that's all there is to it, and um, they're willing to bribe to get in, they're willing virtually to kill to get in, and um, it's not only that. I mean, he is harassed by the rest of the staff, especially the chef who thinks he's um, God's gift to mankind, and um, all that goes with that, but it's a one-person show, and as a result, uh, the person playing the part must play many, many voices. Um, I would think at least two dozen. I may be low. So, um, so Matt Densky did a fabulous job with this. It's really something. Um, I, 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 this time, more than ever, this is the eighth time I've seen the show, <laughs> uh, both in New York and New Jersey, and now Connecticut. And uh, it, this time, more than any other, it seemed to me, my God, how do people actually do this show? It's, <laughs> it's flabbergasting to me that you have to do all these voices, and you have to run around. Um, one of the the points made in the play is the fact that there are three different telephones down in that basement and none of them is near the other. And (laughs) so he has to run around to back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And like in any job, when you, um, when you get used to doing it, 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 doesn't even seem like it's that hard but to those of us who are watching for the first time it's amazingly hard so um i dare say that anybody who does fully committed is going to lose uh, a pound or two or three or ten and um and i do believe that that has to happen with this play but memorizing it seems to be one of the most difficult things 
because how do you keep it straight? How do you keep from jumping? Because there's really no logical um, thrust to when people call. Yes, there is definitely an arc in the play as we see um, this young man working very hard to see if he can go home for Christmas. His mother died earlier in the year and his father's alone and um, all the other siblings live in different places. They're all coming back for Christmas. Can he do it too? And the boss will not let him go because after all, he doesn't have seniority and the person above him wants Christmas off and that's all there is to it. And he hates breaking his father's heart. And yet um, what happens in the play is so, so touching and so moving that once again, at the end, even for the eighth time, I had tears in my eyes. So that's a credit to Becky Mode who wrote it. And that's a credit to Matt Densky who did it. All right. So uh, thanks for the heads up on um, the future things that they're going to be doing there. I will have a link to that stuff in the show notes. And uh, I'm glad that uh, we are starting to uh, get back on our feet. Yeah, starting, starting to get back on our feet. Right. Interesting that the three uh, shows that I know of and the, the Peter mentioned, uh, the three companies that, that have started performing are all in a fairly uh, small area. Yeah. Uh, because there were those two companies in Massachusetts in the Berkshires. Berkshires, yeah. And now uh, this one in Connecticut. So, uh, yay well, for the Well, there's a bunch of, uh, <laughs> bu- bu- bunch of uh, theaters down south that are uh, maybe uh, – uh, starting to um, uh, return to theater, but uh, either officially or non-officially, and there's been some back and forth with uh, with equity about it down south, and also in the in the in the uh, western western part of the nation as well. Uh, we still have uh, some of these things starting to happen. I guess um, as a theater Aspen or something like that. Uh, I wasn't sure if they had already started, but uh, uh, it seems like they, the the ones we we mentioned were the first, uh, you know, among the first anyway. So mm-hmm. yeah, made for the Northeast, you know. <laughs> well, in fact, let me also point out that the capacity uh, at this theater at this moment in time is twenty three. Um, right. and they do take your temperature before you go in. Yep. Um, they do have a, a, a real system, almost like, um, when you're boarding a plane in terms of going in and leaving. Okay. Um, yeah, Felicia, you can leave now. Um, Madison, you can leave now. Uh, it, it really, um, was very much that way. And, um, I'm not complaining by any stretch of any imagination, but nevertheless, uh, be apprised if you do make your way up to Norwalk or any of these other theaters, be prepared for a temperature check, which Susan Charlotte does too. And, and, um, we, you know, we'll see what happens. Susan, by the way, has um, announced that she's doing another show. She doesn't know quite what yet, but it's going to be on Tuesday the 29th at, again, Theater 80 St. Mark. So probably next week I'll have more information on that. Privacy. It's important to all of us, and ExpressVPN is your solution to privacy. Did you know that your internet service provider like Spectrum, Optimum, Comcast, or Verizon knows every single website you visit? And what's worse, they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to all of this. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. I use ExpressVPN on all my devices. It works on everything, phones, televisions, tablets, laptops, even routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even though they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is, 
Using ExpressVPN is easy to use. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you're like me and believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio. We'd like to thank ExpressVPN for continuing to support Broadway Radio. All right. So, uh, Michael, this week, uh, after you got back from uh, Broadway South at the Jersey Shore, you uh, (laughs) came back to watch or rewatch Broadway, The Golden Age, The Legends Who Were There by uh, Rick McKay. So tell us, uh, what prompted you to rewatch these? Well, it's interesting you ask because I I think that I just decided to rewatch it because I had been thinking about Rick McKay, who uh, you know who who made the film, and I've always loved it. I think it's a wonderful documentary about how he grew up, you know, as a, a youngster reading about the Broadway theater and theater in New York and in the New York times, et cetera, and seeing the, all the ABC ads and all the wonderful things and how he wanted to come and be a part of it. But by the time he got here, it was, you know, the city and Broadway were in pretty bad shape uh, from the seventies for, for on and quite for a while. So he, uh, he sort of embarked on this uh, project to, try to speak to lots of the legends who had been a part of it during the quote-unquote golden age and get their reminiscences. Uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful movie with, uh, ta- with many of those great, great people as talking heads, everyone from Angela Lansbury to Elizabeth Ashley to Jerry Orbach to Harold Prince. I could go on and on and on. And um, Rick, uh, well, Rick... Um, I'll, I'll never forget this. He died in January 2018, and I saw him about three nights before that. Did there you was, really? Wow. Yeah, there was a, a, a an opening night after party for the show Party Face, that off-Broadway play that Haley Mills did. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and I was there, and there were lots of great people there, and Rick was there, and uh, I knew him fairly well. And so we talked a little bit, and then when he, he said goodnight, I forget which of us left first, but we we hu- we kind of hugged and kissed. And three day, th- a few days later, I I mm. read that he was gone. It was completely unexpected. So that was a tremendous blow. Um, so I think I wanted to watch it partly as a memorial to him sure, because I was thinking sure. about it. But then this is incredible. So I, I I mean I remembered a lot of it very well, but not every detail, and. So I started watching it, and there's the logo uh, of the film company at the beginning. Then the very first piece of footage is Carol Channing singing before the parade passes by uh, from the 1971 Tonys, I believe. Um, and uh, obviously the appropriateness of that song to the subject matter of the of the documentary, uh, I, I think, is clear. But then th- there's about 20 seconds of footage of that, and then the very next piece of footage the first talking head in the movie is diana rigg Hmm. Hmm. so i was like 
you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and I have to tell you that is the only place uh, in the movie where she appears because there were so oh, wow. many people in it. Uh, she does not come back. Uh, it, it, so if you do get a chance to look at it again, um, treasure her little few moments there at the beginning because now she has left us as of a few days ago and she was really one of the greats i only saw her on broadway in the recent my fair lady revival i did i missed her legendary medea in 1994 Uh, phenomenal people still talk about that yes they do as well they should yeah as well they should ironically enough i had a similar experience uh because Mm -hmm. um a week ago um, uh, my, my girlfriend Linda is a big fan of Shakespeare. And, um, I said, you know, um, maybe you might enjoy this movie called theater of blood, which is about a guy who's gotten lousy reviews as a Shakespearean actor. And now he's going to take revenge on the critics by killing them, um, in the way that the Shakespeare characters were killed. Um, it's, it's, uh, Vincent Price is in it. And you, he made a lot of schlocky movies, um, in that period of time in the late 60s early <laughs> 60s um but uh it's it's really a good movie and um I, diana rake plays his daughter and i said you know we're gonna have to watch that and um we agreed that um we were gonna watch it uh, sometime this week and uh, ironically enough this was just a few days before diana rake died i had a wonderful experience with her five years ago at symphony space when i uh, did a one-on-one with her and we talked about her career but what i remember more than anything else um it started at eight o'clock but i showed up at four o'clock just to get a lay of the land and see what was going on, you know, the stage, the lights, all that kind of stuff. Three people were already in line waiting um, to see her at eight o'clock. And all of the place, the first four rows of that theater that night were filled with men who were in their 60s and 70s who remembered her from the Avengers and uh, had dreams (laughs) about her. Um, uh, You know, and I'm telling you, they were all 60s and 70s. And when she was on stage, I could see the 14 year old boys in their faces. It was really amazing. So she really had fans from that, of course. But yes, and she was phenomenal in My Fair Lady. Um, She really made Mrs. Higgins in a way that I've seen uh, the scene where Eliza's at Ascot and is making one mistake after another. And Diana Rigg is trying to maintain her poise and calm and equilibrium. (laughs) It was was just phenomenal and uh really uh, uh at least um it was a fond farewell it's not a big part but she got a nomination didn't she and uh for good reason because she really made something of that role so good for her and we we will miss her and i'll i'll particularly miss her as a result of that five years ago experience <laughs> so uh yeah we hadn't ta- uh planned to talk about diana rigg i had uh it slipped my mind totally, but I'll put the link to her New York Times obituary in uh, the show notes. And she had such a, a a wonderful, varied career and so many wonderful tributes on social media to uh, to her um, and, and some uh, some kind of very funny things. Uh, somebody had posted about her uh, during My Fair Lady when when uh, when when Lauren had uh, decided to do seven shows a week uh, and uh, Miss Rigg right, uh, took, yeah. took exception to doing right. seven, sh- seven shows a week. Right, I do recall some, that. Yeah. Some very funny stuff. Uh, also on social media, we uh, found out that uh, Mr. Ben Brantley was going to be retiring in a couple of weeks uh, as the chief theater critic at the New York Times, uh, opening up a parlor game of choosing who is going to succeed him. 
So any thoughts about Mr. Brantley leaving the Times? I'm going to say something here that may turn out to be very controversial. But one of the things that's uh, most interesting about being a theater critic who sees um, everything on Broadway and virtually everything off Broadway is that when I read Ben Brantley, I have already seen the show that he has seen. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I thought he was a terrific critic. Terrific. Because so many times I'm reading his review and saying, yep, yep, that's right, that's right, that's right. And a lot of people who criticize Brantley have not had that experience. Yeah, of course, some of them have seen the shows before um, they read his review. I'll grant you that. But nevertheless, perhaps <laughs> inevitably, really, not as consistently as I, who, uh, as I say, sees everything, or at least used to when there was everything. And so I came to Brantley's review with a very different perspective. And um, I knew what he was talking about in a way that the person who had seen the show didn't know. So I thought he was terrific, and I will miss him. Hmm. Michael, any uh, thoughts about Mr. Brantley? I have very similar feelings to Peter. I, uh, of course, we, we've we've seen tremendous amounts of reaction, both positive and negative, mm -hmm. uh, online. And I will say that it, it, I, I personally agree with the positive assessments of his writing. I I always enjoyed his reviews, and I think they were very well written. And I also think that because he was in the job so long. Uh, the the you know the positive aspect of that is that you really do get to get a bead on someone's taste in general, and I felt like I his reviews were more helpful to me for that reason because I had an idea of what tastes we shared and which ones we didn't. But regardless of that, I, I think the writing was always very intelligent and very very thoughtful, and I also think that it. Um, would be difficult to to figure out exactly the tone and type of review to write for that you know for one publication as opposed to another uh i i would think that the writing reviews for the times you would want to be more uh a little more literate <laughs> uh uh than maybe for some other some other media, but on the other hand, it's, it's, it is still a popular newspaper and you wouldn't write a review like you would write a scholarly essay for American theater magazine or something like that. And I always thought that he uh, has always struck a very good balance in that way between, uh, between the, the very informal uh, writing and, and something much more scholarly and more lofty. So I, I always appreciated him for that. I, uh, I'm very grateful that some years ago when I was teaching uh, as an adjunct at Wagner College that he agreed to come out and speak to the students there. Uh, and we, we did a, a little uh, post-performance discussion and everyone was really, really thrilled to have him there. That, that was, that was wonderful. And I, I am wonderful. more than, yeah. And I am more than a little disconcerted to see some of the extremely negative reaction to his oeuvre from some people, because I think even if you um, did have objections to him, there, there's nothing uh, to me that would be that great that would warrant that kind of a negative reaction. I, I think, I suppose that happens with almost every critic. Sure. Uh, and 
people have people harbor these apparently harbor all these resentments uh in in their hearts when they read reviews uh, for whatever reason sometimes it's personal sometimes not and they tend to come out when someone finally leaves a job for whatever reason i was going to say that uh you know when frank rich was in his prime at the new york times as the chief theater critic uh i, I think that people uh, you know, had daggers out to him wherever he was. Mm. Uh, and he has transitioned into uh, a writer on on large cultural and political topics. And, and is, a TV producer now, too. A TV producer and, and has become, uh, you know, well-regarded in his opinions. I, I think it's tough when you, when you criticize art, especially if the, if the artist uh, is reading it in real time about their art, I mean, it's very tough. And sure, you, sure. you stick, you stick a, a microphone or a pen in front of somebody for a long period of time, and eventually we all make mistakes. Uh, certainly, uh, of course, you know, uh, Brantley has made mistakes, and we've all made mistakes. Uh, but uh, along the same lines of your Wagner story, uh, Michael, is that uh, Carrie Purcell, who is a friend of ours at, at Broadway Radio and has been on a number of times, and actually I'm going to be talking with her about her book uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, Carrie posted on social media that uh, when she uh, first moved to New York, um, her... Uh, she had written to Ben Brantley uh, to talk about having a life as a th in theater journalism and theater criticism, and Ben got back to her right away and had had coffee with her and was very encouraging to her. And that is really, you know, uh, somebody in in Ben's position must get a lot of requests and pulls at sure. his time and schedule sure. all sure. the time, and for him to do something with, you know. Absolutely yeah. nothing in it for him. Right. Uh, right. Uh, seemed to be a uh, a nice story about the man it's, mm -hmm. the man itself. Mm -hmm. I agree. So we'll, we'll have to see what the New York Times does. And uh, my, my thoughts about the New York Times are that um, it it seems to be a, a, a diminishing power or something. Well, sure. Yeah. And, and some in so far as you know the the ability to keep a show open or close a show or things like that. I, I I don't think that that still is the case. But and I think that the New York Times theater critic, whoever it may be, still has this Wizard of Oz type of presence of the 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 man behind the curtain type of thing, and it, it might not actually be. Uh, all that influential of a job going forward as it as it has been in the past. So, and there's uh, two, two several more interesting aspects of this discussion are that, of course, until a few years ago, they didn't have two co-chief theater critics. Mm, mm, mm. That that's a quite a recent phenomenon, mm. and and uh, until Ben just announced his departure, it was Ben Brantley and Jesse Green. So, um, uh, will they? Uh, will they choose another co-chief theater critic? I think or, that's the plan. Yeah, and 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 then of course, if they they themselves have said there's no need to do it right at the moment because there is sure a, yeah. theater. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the the timetable and exactly how they'll do it, all of that is up in the air. I think it'll be interesting to see what decisions they make. 
Hmm. Uh, Michael, um, Paul Witte asked in the, in the chat room, mm -hmm. he wants to know if you, uh, or if you or Peter have seen the, uh, second film of Rick McKayley, uh, Broadway Beyond the Golden Age? No, and I'm not sure of the status. Someone uh, yeah, mentioned that to either. me the other day. I, I, I don't, I mean, it's certainly not finished uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as I know, but right. it was, I believe, in its finishing up stages uh, when he left. And, and I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I think, unfortunately, that maybe it might be tied up now in his estate. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I, I don't, I don't. I think that the reason we haven't seen it is not because it's not releasable, but maybe be because of of rights issues. And I could be completely wrong about that. Uh, I'll have to see. I know one or two people who would actually have the answer to that question, and but I haven't checked in with them uh, lately. I I did ask not long after Rick died, and and I don't remember actually what what the situation was at the at the time but now that's uh, that's uh more than two years ago so i i will see what i can find out and report back all right yeah it's one of my great regrets is that i i had it on my list of things to do is to uh bring rick mckay on broader radio and mm. I, I never did it uh mm. And uh, I really wish I had because he had such an incredible passion for uh, for Broadway and and all the things that anybody who listens to this show would would love as well. So, and the way that he le that left us so suddenly and unexpectedly, of course, it just points up the ephem ephemeral you nature bet. of the theater. There is there are so many people in that documentary who. Uh, died not long after, uh, including Uta Hagen. Uh, and then, uh, then there are others who went on for quite a number of years, like Patricia Morrison. But there, there are now, at this point, there are many, several, who are no longer sure, with us. Sure. And so that, that obviously serves a, a valuable, invaluable function. Mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, when we were talking about Brantley, I forgot to... Uh, bring up this uh, social media uh, note by Charles Isherwood. Isherwood uh, posted, so saddened by today's big news, Century 21 is closing all its stores. Wow. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <Are> we... <laughs> oh, still waters run deep. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, that's someone I was not a fan of. So we all have our people we, sure. <laughs> we sure. appreciate more than others. Sure. We had another member of the Broadway community pass away this week. Uh, Greg Willard, a longtime doorman at the Gershwin Theater, passed away from lung cancer. Jennifer Ashley Tepper interviewed Greg for one of her books, and she wrote a wonderful post about him on Facebook. I'm going to uh, include that link in the show notes for everyone to read. I only knew him peripherally, but um, we had uh, – <laughs> I bet we had 23-minute conversations over the years. Yeah. And, uh, and he was great fun. And um, so I'm, I'm – and somebody said he actually wound up on stage in Wicked. Um, uh, hmm. I, I, I don't know what happened, but, um, if that's not true, don't be surprised, but I, yeah. somebody did allege that. Um, so who knows? <laughs> so, uh, uh, let's have a short little conversation this week brought to you by our friend Kerr Lockhart. 
uh, Kerr emailed us a few weeks ago and suggested a topic. And he said, uh, shows that can't be revived. Uh, and so he was talking about uh, shows that, you know, just may not be uh, appropriate to do these days or may not make sense to do these days. Uh, and I thought that I would pose the question to Peter and Michael, what are some shows that you think that can't be revived? Well, the first one that comes to mind, and believe me, I'm going to start off in benign fashion. Uh -huh. um, it's not that it's politically incorrect per se, but um, there was an enormous hit play back in the early 60s called Never Too Late. And um, it, it's one of the few plays in the last 60 years to run over a thousand performances. That's not easy to do anymore. And uh, so many of our Tony winners of uh, years past have not remotely reached that figure. So, uh, but Never Too Late was a, a, a smash sensation back in 1962. And the point of the play is that um, an older man, perhaps in his 50s, married to a wife who's in her 40s now, uh, impregnates her. And everybody's a little surprised that that happened because um, the conventional non-wisdom is that as people get older, they have sex far less uh, often. And as a result, um, and married couples especially, um, turn out to be good friends more than lovers. But this is what happens. Now, what makes this significant is that um, the couple's daughter is living with them and with her husband. So we have four people living in this place. And unfortunately, too, the young man is the employee of his father-in-law, and that's not an easy position to be in. But what makes this play, I think, unrevivable, because nobody would understand it, is that the daughter does nothing for a living in any way, shape, or form. She doesn't even help with the housework. I mean, she is just um, this princess type. And I don't know if, if audiences would really be able to understand this anymore, that a, a young woman does absolutely nothing with her time. Nothing. And part of the joke of the play is now that the mother is going to have to put her feet up and not work as hard, the daughter has to take over and she's totally incompetent in doing everything. And that's supposed to be the fun of the play. And I don't think that uh, laughing at a woman's um, so-called incompetence um, is something that audiences would find funny anymore. I will say this. I never saw the play. Ironically, it tried out in Boston. I was living there at the time, but um, I, it was just one I didn't get to. Um, I was a, a, a teenager and money was hard to come by and rustling up $5.50 for an orchestra seat to a play was not easy. So, um, so I missed it and I've never seen it since and I don't expect to see it again. However, a movie was made in 1965 and there is a moment in the movie that is so wonderful that I really think it's worth um, renting the picture, um, seeing it on YouTube, whatever. Um, it is so wonderful because she goes to the doctor's office, uh, the, the, the woman, um, the older woman, and finds out she's pregnant, and she's stunned. She's absolutely stunned that this has happened. And she's walking down the street, and there's music in the background. What a great song this would be in a musical. She's mm -hmm. walking down the street, and music is playing, and suddenly she goes from confusion to a sense of exhilaration because she feels young. There's, you, you, that's <laughs> something that happens. I don't know. I, I can't imagine that happened in the play um, because it is an outdoor scene and all that. And uh, maybe it was handled in dialogue. Again, I don't know. But I will tell you, it is worth seeing the movie for that and for something else that is very insignificant, but I'm going to bring it up. 
Um, the movie was shot in Concord, Massachusetts, which I know well. Uh, it was two towns over from where I grew up. But it, one scene is taking place in front of a record store. And you can see in the window two albums. <laughs> Two albums and only two albums. The soundtrack to the recently um, released My Fair Lady movie and the cast album of The Roar of the Grease Paint the Smell of the Crowd. <laughs> this tells you something about 1965 when record stores would put show albums in the window hmm. expecting them to be the ones to lure people in and buy them. So look carefully if you watch the movie and you will see those two records in uh, the, the front window of the store. And there are things about the movie that are really quite wonderful but again, you have to take it with a shaker full of salt uh, that you're seeing something about a woman who just doesn't exist anymore and it's all for the best. Hmm. Uh, how about you, Michael? Well, first of all, I wanted to uh, apologize in advance because I think we've uh, probably mentioned some of the things we're going to say today before in, sure. in the context of other discussions. Uh, and so I, I, for example, I, the one I'm going to lead off with, which is Life with Father, which is uh, to this day the longest running play non-musical in Broadway history, opened November 8th, 1939 closed July 12th, 1947 for 3,224 performances. Uh, and at three different theaters, by the way, two of which are no longer with us, the Empire, uh, the Bijou, and the Alvin. So, uh, and this is the wonderful, wonderful comedy by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss based on stories by Clarence Day. And I, as I've said before, I think the main reason that it's not necessarily revivable now is just because the humor is delightful, but it's a very gentle, slow-moving kind of mm, humor yes, that, yes. that is just really not in fashion so much today. Uh, maybe with stars. <laughs> I guess you can do anything with stars, right? Uh, if you were to get one or two or more stars in the leading roles, maybe it, it might at least work for a, a limited run at one of the institutional theaters like uh, Lincoln Center, or they, oh, they would do an amazing job with it because, you know, the kinds of fabulous sets they do mm. at, at Lincoln Center to, to have that, uh, that main set of the morning room of the day house on Madison Avenue in the late 1880s. I can only imagine what one of the great set designers could do with that on the stage of the Vivian Beaumont. But who knows, maybe we'll see it someday. I, I remember Gerard Alessandrini and, and I thought a while ago that a perfect person for the lead would have been Alec Baldwin. Because hmm. uh, he, he's good at playing that kind of a character. The main character, Clarence Day, is... Uh, I think he might still fly today because he's... Uh, he come he comes across as a as an authoritarian, and of course, the, the time period we're talking about was definitely a man's world. Uh, mm -hmm. In well, probably everywhere, but especially you know, someone living on Madison Avenue with his family, and uh, he uh, I forget what type of business he's in, but he's very much in a in a male dominated society, and he. Uh, he likes to lord it over the family, but but we also get the impression that they understand exactly where he's coming from and they don't take him very seriously. And, and we also get the impression that it's really 
the uh, the matriarch, the mother Lavinia, uh, who's always called Vinny, who really kind of pulls all the strings. <laughs> and yet, and yet, another reason the play would have trouble being revived is that she is um, characterized as stupid in one scene because she talks about taking back uh, something she bought and uh, getting um, something else. Um, and oh, right. uh, and she expects that um, she is going to get credit for bringing something back without um, the idea that she took something uh, in exchange. <laughs> and she really believes that she is entitled to a refund because she brought it back and she doesn't understand that getting something in return um, cancels that out. And um, and that's supposed to be really how um, in those days women were considered uh, just terrible with numbers and concepts like that. And I think that really would be the biggest problem, um, even the fact that, uh, as Anna Krauss told me, um, uh, Russell Krauss's widow, um, people don't understand that type of family anymore because um, mm. the, the fathers don't have that type of authority and they don't even want it. I mean, they they want to be nicer to their kids and not just be um, sure. uh, tough guys um, who, who just are dictators. So, um, so I think that's part of it too. Uh, a play that was done on Broadway in 1989, and it was too late for it then. Uh, a big hit in London, but it ran um, just a tiny bit over a month here that we'll never see again is Run for Your Wife by Ray Cooney. It's a farce. Now, ironically enough, I first saw this play in Rome when it was called Taxi a Due Piazza. Ironically enough, it is about a bigamist. And um, oh, okay, so they live in two. His his women live in two different places, right? And the set was um, one. Um, one wall had, uh, let's say, red wallpaper, and the next wall had yellow wallpaper, and the <laughs> next wall had red, and the next had yellow, and it was that's what the set was. Every flat had uh, alternating wallpapers to let us know we were going to be in two separate apartments. And here's a guy who um, has been um, – neither wife knows about the other, of course, and um, he works – 16 hours a day to support both of them. And I, I talked to Ray Cooney about this, um, and I said, what's really wonderful is the fact you can tell that he didn't want to break either woman's heart. And that's why he wound up, um, he could tell that they loved him, and he just wanted to uh, be nice and do the right thing by them. So he's willing to work 16 hours just so that uh, he can um, please both women and make them happy. <laughs> so it's not like he's a rake or anything like that. Um, this is not that type of thing. Uh, he is really behind the eight ball and having to work two jobs, and it's very, very hard for him, and he's exhausted all the time. Well, anyway, that's not the problem, really. The real problem is that it is so homophobic. There are so many slurs against gays uh. as the play goes on. I mean, every one of those words that you ever heard that you would never dare say again and would never want to say again. Um, are, are, are in the, it, it, everyone, I mean, I, I don't think he missed one of them. And, uh, I, and I do believe that that's one of the reasons in 1989, 20 years after Stonewall, that the play did not succeed, even though much of it is very funny. So we're not going to see it again. And um, that's one I won't mourn not seeing again. So uh, I, I I didn't know anything about Run for Your Wife, and I was just quickly looking it up, and it was uh, written, produced, and starring 
Ray oh yeah, he had his own uh, real machine uh, going. Uh, very nice man, very nice guy. Um, did a play at Paper Mill, and that's where I got to know him. Um, yes, uh, he he was really the power. Yeah, you know, it's. I remember Nancy Richards, um, a, a wonderful woman who uh, was a producer of Fields of Ambrosia in London. When I went over there to uh, cover that, because it had started the George Street Playhouse, uh, and I was reviewing for the Star Ledger at the time. So as a result, um, we we said, "Oh, let's go see a matinee of something." And it was one of those things that um, Funny Money, uh, which was later made into a movie, by the way, a Ray <laughs> Cooney farce um, was being done. And, you know, it's so funny. You know, when, you, when you go with somebody else, you barely know. You get embarrassed when you laugh at something stupid. You know, and I mean, every now and then Ray Cooney was able to tickle your funny bone, no matter how ridiculous the plot may be. And I remember both of us, you know, being somewhat embarrassed when we found something funny because, uh, you know, you just know a lot from people from what they laugh at. And, uh, but uh, he had quite a career, and um, boy, uh, his plays ran a long, long time in London, and uh, never here. But um, he—I don't think he ever had a hit here. Um, but boy, did he um, did he have success over there? Believe me, he only yeah. had two plays here, by the way, only two. Uh, yeah, darling. Yeah, yeah. He had, yeah, his IBDB. Um, uh, consists of five plays, which three of them he produced. Uh, Not Now, Darling, which he wrote. Uh, Whose Life Is It Anyway, which he produced. Uh, he also had a revival of Whose Life Is It Anyway, duet yeah. for one. Uh, and which is so funny because those plays don't have his sensibility at all. Whose Life Is It Anyway is about a quadriplegic. Duet for one is about a woman who um, um, has a debilitating illness that's not going to allow her to uh, be a musician anymore. So it's it's so interesting that those were the ones that he produced. Uh, obviously, mm. he was one of the producers. But um, but it's so bizarre that, uh, indeed, um, he would produce something so far afield from the type of thing that appealed to him. Tony Janicki asks, uh, can Tea House of the August Moon be revived today if uh, Sakini is played by an Asian actor? Or is well, it too constant? Well, it wasn't that long ago, though it probably was, uh, when <laughs> um, the, I think Pan-Asian Rep revived it. Um, I guess it was a while ago because I think it was at Theater 91, which is long gone. So uh, it may not be as soon as I, uh, recent as I thought it was. But, um, yeah, a lot of people um, have a bad opinion of uh, Tea House of the August Spoon. And um, if you see the movie, Marlon Brando is playing um, the Asian. Um, and if you saw the musical version, Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentleman, Kenneth Nelson, who we know is the boy from The Fantastic and the boy in the band, mm -hmm. um, Michael and boys in the band, uh, played the part. And that was 1971, and um, there wasn't quite the awareness that hey, hey, you know, let's let's have real people in real parts. Um, so uh, I don't know. It's um, it's a little condescending, I'll admit that play. Um, and ironically, I was talking about the other day because the first person who was musicalizing it was Walter Marks, who many know from Bajour and Golden Rainbow. And um, he didn't wind up doing it. And I remember asking him, um, why did you leave the project? He said, well, you know, it was the time of Vietnam. And I just thought it wasn't the right time to be doing something about um, what it is, is about uh, Yankee Imperials coming over and um, showing um, the Asians a thing or two about how to run things. And uh, of course, Zucchini is a wheeler and dealer. And he's... Um, 
he's nobody's fool and he winds up making fools of the people who are uh, come over who think they have all the answers so uh, that's what the play is really about and it was a titanic hit back in the 50s running an inordinately long time but um, i agree with tony i don't think we're going to see it again hmm uh for the same reason what about the original version of flower drum song well, you know, I, I have to say that I uh, think the original version of Flower Drum Song is fine. Um, I, uh, because it, what it really deals with is... Um, Assimilation the, or yeah, lack of I, same. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, 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 there's a, a father not unlike life with father. And in fact, Oscar Hammerstein said one of the reasons he was attracted to it because he felt it was a Chinese life with father. So it is about this authoritarian figure, but he doesn't have as much control as uh, Clarence Day does. Um, what happens in Flower Drum Song is there are two sons and one of them is totally American, um, doesn't want anything to do with Chinese uh, traditions, while the older son, is caught in between and that's mm. his struggle that he um he's not quite american he's not quite chinese as his father is the father uh, emigrated and um still will not take on american values will not dress in american clothes etc cetera, etc cetera. just has utter contempt for what uh, america is and um essentially is sorry he ever moved here um, so, uh, I don't know. I see the struggle between, um, a, a kid caught between, uh, two, um, ideals is, is a perfectly valid one. And, um, so I like the original flower drum song and I have no problem with it being done again. Um, of course it would be done with Asians and it was, there were very few Asians in that cast when it was first done. Very few indeed. We almost had a, um, had the ability to see a rethought thoroughly, thoroughly modern Millie. Uh, right. at encores yes um, and so i i i wonder if encores when we get back to performances we'll be able to uh, revisit this yeah i have a feeling we're not going to see those uh, asian characters portrayed the way they were yeah um uh, i get that impression i mean well, I, 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 I think they said as much <laughs> yeah, yeah did they yeah. Uh-huh. yeah uh michael what's next on your list uh I wanted to, before going on, I wanted to go back briefly to Life with Father. And, you know, Peter, for what it's worth, I have a totally different interpretation of that that scene you mentioned. Uh, what happens is that uh, the mother, Lavinia Vinny, uh, she wants to be able to, uh, for her son, Clarence, day junior to get a new seat a new suit of clothes that he desperately needs and she knows that um his father will never approve it so she had previously bought on credit by the way and this is again the late 1880s so i think we're supposed to uh believe this is the beginning of credit in department stores uh Uh, so that's interesting that something is so old that that yeah, had just yeah. started, and it's fascinating to see that. And she had bought this um, ridiculous uh, pug dog sta- mm-hmm. ceramic statue that she mm-hmm. situated in the living room or the parlor somewhere. And her husband absolutely hates it. And he's like, "Bring that, take that away, get that out of here. I don't ever want to see it again." So she wants to exchange it for the suit of clothes, and I think. I I could be wrong. I think she knows exactly what she's doing. She's trying to convince her husband that he won't have to pay for it because <laughs> because uh, she's going to exchange the pug dog for the suit. And he's and the husband is, says, "Well, I'm going to have to pay for one or the other." And she goes, "Well, don't you let them charge?" Right. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. I, I I think what uh, whatever. I, I think that uh, that she's not. 
supposed to be uh, stupid, but I, I, I could be wrong. Um, uh, operettas, uh, <laughs> I would say 95 or more percent of them are not really revivable now. So, so interesting that Pirates of Penzance is the shining exception. Uh, the other Gilbert and Sullivan ones, you would think they might be revivable because they're so, or were so funny. But the problem there is, again, a lot of the humor in them I don't know if it translates to modern audiences, especially modern American audiences. Uh, things like the Mikado, um, uh, which has other issues also in terms of revival. But even, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, HMS Pinafore would be uh, another one that might be revivable if it was done right and done it really creatively in the way that that pirate that amazing pirates of penzance was that uh public theater production um so uh when i uh, years ago when when i started going to city opera in the late 70s and 80s they would still do operettas uh they had already become i guess uh, 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 old news and unrevivable on Broadway, but uh, for a few performances a, a season at New York City Opera, they were still considered viable, and I I enjoyed seeing a few of them there. Uh, Encores, of course, had a, um, a couple of big hits, right? The New Moon. Uh, the New Moon, yeah. That right. that was the big hit that they yeah. had. Uh, but there again, if four or five, six. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Total. Yeah. So that's, and then of course the style of the music uh, on top of the the humor is, uh, and the and the books, the, the, the libretti, uh, many people are not into that kind of music anymore. I know me. Uh, so uh, it, I know that the, um, uh, that un- until recently, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I guess until COVID, that there were groups that that still did them. Uh, New York Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan sure. players, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and you know, for the coterie uh, of people who do st- still love that kind of music, and I, I suppose some younger people uh, must be getting into operettas over the years because there would be i mean obviously and anyone there's no one still alive who who was mm. alive in their heyday uh mm-hmm. uh so i i hope they continue uh, on some level in in some degree of revival in future because i think it's wonderful to have all kinds of art represented like that in revival at least sometimes no but you're right we can't hold our breath yeah um um, uh, ironically enough um even before curl arkart brought up this topic um i decided to watch the movie of pearly victorious Mm. which is uh the property on which the musical pearly is based and um i see no future for either one of these properties um pearly is uh about um uh, a young uh, minister who is trying to bilk um the old captain who has been terribly unfair to black uh, people and um, anybody who works for him and as a result there is one character who's an uncle tom uh, who just uh, yeses everything that uh, the old captain says because the captain has put him in a position of a little power, not a lot, but a little. And it's really sad to see uh, this man toady to this um, ignorant um, white guy who thinks he knows everything and is 
totally unfair and wants to be totally unfair and is very happy with being totally unfair. But, you know, there's also the issue of two wrongs don't make a right. And Pearlie is trying to deceive him. So that's a little problematic, too. Ironically enough, when the movie was first released, yes, it was called Pearlie Victorious, but then it was retitled Gone Are the Days. Hmm. And I do believe that they were saying essentially right then and there, and the movie was 61, that um, the days are already gone, that this is the type of thing that was happening or should happen or has happened or whatever. But uh, if gone were the days in 1961, they're certainly gone now. And um, even though Pearlie has a rousing score, and it's certainly... um, brought great attention to both Cleavon Little as Pearlie and uh, Melba Moore as Ludie Bell, the woman he's trying to pass off as uh, the captain's, um, uh, I don't remember actually, but uh, whatever she is, they're trying to get money out of him by saying she's somebody else. Um, and uh, But I don't think we're going to see that again. And That um, other character you mentioned, I believe his name is Gitlow. G-I-T-L-O, which is, I mean, it is obviously a comment on what he's doing, but also that was created in the musical by Sherman Helmsley Jr. uh, pre the Jefferson. So that that's a little bit of which brings up an interesting point, because um, it's it's certainly a a supporting role. And I saw one of the last previews of Pearlie before it opened in um, March of 1970. And of course, he came on and, you know, nobody did anything then. Uh, many moons later, I don't remember the actual day, but I will tell you it was the day that Harry Chapin died because I remember hearing it on the radio as we mm-hmm. were driving out to Lehman College to see the taping right. of Pearlie. Uh, and, um, and so Sherman Helmsley was doing it and he came on, the audience broke into tremendous applause of recognition because by now he had become a TV star and everybody <laughs> knew who he was. So uh, it really was uh, something to see the difference what, what a TV series can do for you. I wonder if um, this came up the other day because I I was lucky enough to get a treasure trove of 30 old LPs from a friend of mine who was just giving them away everything. Do you still have a turntable? I I got one not long ago. (laughs) Okay, all right. And everything from Tenderloin to uh, Ernest in Love. Fabulous. Uh, Ernest but, in Love's fabulous. By the way, one of them is the original two LP set of the Boys in the Band. Yeah, which, yeah. Uh, I know has been transferred to uh, you know CD or digital, but there's something about hearing it on the you know LPs as originally issued. Uh, that's really amazing. Uh, you mentioned Kenneth Nelson before, so that mm-hmm. made me think of it. Mm-hmm. And. Um, uh, and and it's and of course then we have the movie with the entire original cast, but it's really interesting to hear how beautifully well done this recording is. It sounds like it's a recording of the show in full live performance on a stage. I, I don't know, I don't know if it was a, a stage or a studio, but regardless, it really sounds like a live recording. So I would recommend that to people. And on a related note, I've just seen the trailer for the new yeah, huh? Netflix uh, version of, uh, of the, the show based on the recent Broadway revival, the recent ish Broadway revival. And it looks like it's going to be amazing. So if that's not already on your radar, um, put it on. But um, but another LP I got was Raisin. And actually, I uh, wanted to ask Peter if he thought that was revivable. We, we were discussing that. And I said, I think it's a really good musical. And I, I suspect the only reason it hasn't been revived in a major revival is because everyone keeps doing the play. <laughs> I agree. 
<laughs> I agree. Um, and uh, I do feel that it's, it's a fine musical adaptation. It may not, um, tr- it doesn't transcend the play. No, it doesn't. No, Let's face no. it. But um, it's, uh, it's an intelligent uh, adaptation. And um, when uh, we see Walter in a scene uh, where he has to be a chauffeur, we see how uh, miserable his life is, and uh, that's that's a significant addition. So, yes. Uh, so yes, um, I think raisin is quality work, and I, I do think it's the reason that everybody does raisin in the sun. That people think, well, nobody's going to come and see this, so we might as well not do it because, after all, it's more expensive. Mm. I will say, raisin had one thing that I uh, the the direction of it that was very very strange and wrong was the fact that um, they did a lot of miming uh, when it came to turning on water faucets and um, things like that. Mm. And you really need to see, it was a unit set, as I recall. As I recall, I may be wrong. We're talking, you know, almost 50 years ago. <laughs> but, um, and I first started at Arena Stage where things were even more um, basic and stark. And that might even be the reason why they did the, um, the miming of all these uh, kitchen duties and what have you. But the thing is, you know, part of the whole point is the fact that you have to see how woebegone the apartment is. And, um, right. and so because they, it's all about getting out of there. And when it looks like they're not going to get out of there, it's so sad when the mother is trying to make the best of a bad situation and says, well, you know, we can get new curtains and I bet you won't even recognize the place. Yes, you would. And it's very important for them to get out of there. So I do think Raisin made a mistake in um, not having a more realistic uh, type of production, even though it was a musical. Uh, So um, I think that's one of the reasons why it never became a a real classic, uh, because that original production shortchanged what needed to be. Uh, scene. Mm. All right. Uh, one or one more that you want to throw in before we wrap up? I wonder about Green Pastures. I've never even watched the movie, even though I have it here. And um, this is um, a way of uh, dealing with um, Bible stories, but uh, from an African American context. And I, you know, I've never dared to watch the movie because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be terribly offended by it. But you know, of course, <laughs> back then it was considered to be something really quite wonderful in um, in, in giving an African American perspective to the creation of the world and other business, and um, also by giving blacks an opportunity to have a play of their own. But I don't, I don't know if it would fly today, and um, maybe tonight will be the night that. Uh, I will um, take out green pastures and watch it, or at least try to watch it. Michael, one last one for you. Oh, uh, it'll be interesting to me to see if there are future revivals of uh, three shows. Well, Carnival, Fanny, and Gigi. Um, These are all about, uh, well, uh, older men involved with very young women. And I guess they come from a, a tradition of French, from French literature, French culture, where that uh, seems that, that that was a, you know, a, a tradition for many, 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 many years, which we never necessarily had so much in this country. So there's always been that disconnect. And I know, for example, as uh, the few people who saw it know that the recent Broadway revisal of, of Gigi was a wholesale rewrite, rewrite because they felt uh, that there was so much about it that was maybe not uh, not acceptable to a modern American audience. Um, so it will be interesting to, to me to see if any of those three 
are seen again and and uh, if they're just performed as originally written or if they are all revised extensively. Hmm. Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com where there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. Uh, iHeartRadio places, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you, you can listen to. Find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? What musical has a song that celebrates two Hall of Famers, one who played for the Detroit Tigers and the other who worked for the Los Angeles Dodgers? Well, in the baseball game, in Falsettos, Mendel mentions Hank Greenberg and Sandy Koufax, <laughs> who respectively played for the Tigers and the Dodgers en route to the Hall of Fame. Paul Whitty was the first to get it, followed by Greg Pavlak, Mike Meany, Richard Carey, Tony Janicki, Greg Christensen, Kathy Jones, and Josh Israel. Now, Craig Selden noted that in Xana Don't, both <laughs> Ty Cobb mm-hmm. and Wayne Gretzky are mentioned. And while the latter played hockey and not baseball, he did do commercials heralding the Dodgers' new stadium. And I did say worked for the Los Angeles Dodgers, didn't I? Also, I wouldn't have to repeat the word played. And so as a result, Craig Selden gets credit for answering the question as well. This week's question, which musical, it was a Broadway musical, which Broadway musical was the first to use an answering machine within a song? Hmm. Huh. Okay. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where
feeling 